Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Three Peas in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin, and I'm joined by my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Hi, Paul. We'll be discussing the latest concerns surrounding the UK PFI model and casting an eye over how Middle East instability is affecting the market. There'll also be some time to talk about some of the outcomes of our recently published yearbooks and to get the latest gossip from resident snoop Hackett P. Dealsworth. So, PFI has found itself in the news again, uh, this time thanks to a BBC Radio 4 investigation looking at the impact of PFI on schools. It's fair to say the report was pretty negative, um, focusing on examples of poor maintenance, questioning whether the process is value for money, warning about the impact of inflation on annual repayments. And I think the tone was fairly negative, really right from the start, references to paying for the buildings on the never-never. There was even a reference to that old canard, really, about £300 to change a light bulb. I think it was originally in the original Public Accounts Committee report, but in this particular edition, it was referred to as changing a light switch. So, yeah, it was never going to be a uh, a big rousing celebration of where PFI has gone right. I think it was an interesting piece to read because over the last year or two, the focus or particularly the areas of negativity around PFI has generally been centred around you know, behaviours and handback. And we've seen numerous broadsheets covering that. But this was really in depth on an area which really a lot of people would agree that PFIs have generally been held up as delivering good maintenance and actually at a higher standard than uh, equivalent assets. I think at the same time as that, the value for money question, which this does focus on quite a bit, which I'm sure we'll come to in a little bit, around the inflation element. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting things around this particular piece was that there were three head teachers interviewed on there. Two of them, and who took up probably more than the first half of the, the programme, actually started off by saying they have really positive views on the buildings. They think they're well maintained. They look great. You know, references to them kind of looking like new and, and all that kind of thing. And I think that's that's exactly what PFI was meant to achieve, wasn't it? To give you buildings that were maintained to a high standard that remained in that good quality from the time they were built onwards. And, you know, we've had reports recently, there's a, a panorama piece not that long ago about the state of some schools and particularly around the um, the rack concrete issue. And, you know, we still see, in fact, I think the day after the, the Radio 4 article came out, there was a news story about a, a school that was sort of falling apart effectively and people complaining that this was because it should have been refurbished as part of the Building Schools for the Future programme and wasn't. So it's quite an odd thing to be complaining about in some ways that, that these schools are being maintained to a high standard. Yeah, and I think the reason why I brought up Hanback earlier in, in relation to this is it, generally that debate has centred around contract adherence and contract management, whereas the criticisms, and I'm thinking just pointing to the one about the length of the grass being cut more frequently and, and that being seen as unnecessary, that is a totally different way of viewing the contract. And actually, the search there is to try and get value out of contract 
deviation in a way, which I think, you know, that is a back and forth that does happen between the public and private sectors anyway, during the contracts. But with this, it's a totally different angle of value. And I think it does just show that there are so many angles that you can come with at PFI. But that overall question of value for money is one which, you know, it does remain to be seen in terms of the overall life cycle cost. But in this case, it doesn't seem to land in quite the same way as as it has been with the handback argument. Yeah, and I think the grass cutting question, you know, does the grass need to be cut to whatever it was, two and a half centimetres, I think? Probably not. Is that something that should have been thought about perhaps when the contract was signed? Probably. Is it something that the authority could look at renegotiating? Definitely. Although, you know, I think they said in response to this that it would cost them too much to open up the contract and renegotiate, which is very possibly true. But again, you know, I think one of the sort of frustrations coming through on the the article was around head teachers not really having the control over how they manage and these buildings. And that's understandable and you can kind of see that point but at the same time the benefit of it being perhaps at a a higher level at a council level is that really the council should be looking across its portfolio of pfi schools and taking a decision right here are some issues that we could look at renegotiating with the private sector to save potentially both sides some money and actually that's where the issue lies i think partly is that that's not happening i think the other big issue with this obviously is that when you come to value for money I think what a lot of people are saying, certainly the, I think all the head teachers kind of on in this piece that was coming through from them is that there is not enough money now to service these PFI contracts and deliver the, the standard of education that you want. But to be honest, that's not a failure of PFI. That's a failure of government funding, essentially, to be blunt. I think you have to think about if these PFI contracts weren't in, in existence, would there be all this money suddenly available to deliver new bits of curriculum or outside normal hours service? Probably not, because the way that investment has been cut from public sector over the past 10 years or more suggests that actually that would probably have just been lost in the system anyway. Well, that, that was one of the comments I saw uh, from the industry. They were saying that you see instances of poor condition of schools in assets which aren't under the PFI umbrella and are suffering the same budgetary constraints. And, and it's the constant argument about deferred maintenance. We saw that in the US where they had their first schools bundle has just recently been delivered. And their backlog of deferred maintenance was absolutely colossal. And it's an issue that you know, in the present, when you've got problems with value for money, can be kind of kicked into the long grass a bit. But you are seeing in the UK schools instances, you know, obviously the, the popular one at the moment is about the rack concrete and ceilings falling in, in primary schools. So that you can see the evidence of what happens when you defer maintenance right there. In as you said, in the next day, the next article was was about that. I wonder though, here in terms of that inflationary element and the indexing that was one of the first times that we've seen Lord Hutton who's one of the new major players in the PFI space kind of come out and and make a point but I thought the point that he was making was one about education rather than coming out to say bat for PFI as some people might look at it as being but really it's about trying to make sure that the whole argument and the whole discussion is coming from an, an educated perspective because it's not always clear to the general public how PFIs work and because they're complicated and especially as issues such as risk transfer happened 20 years ago in some of these cases that 
it's not going to be the main focus. And you know, many in the industry complain that there are misunderstandings that are quite fundamental to the arguments made against PFI. So I think we're seeing Lord Hutton actually being able to go out and challenge some of those and to help elevate the discussion so they don't trip over on those first hurdles when there are real issues and real progress to be made when there is a, a proper functioning discussion being had. Yes, I think, you know, you look at the debate as it was around the end of PFI and the creation of PF2 in the what mid-2010s, I guess, and a lot of that conversation was into a partial vacuum, effectively, because there wasn't an awful lot coming from the the private sector, the private investors, into that debate, and into, certainly not in public. And they, you know, they may well have been doing lobbying in private. There was a consultation that I know a lot of them did commit to. But you know, in terms of public perception, in terms of um, TV documentary pieces, uh, radio, all that kind of stuff. It was often actually someone like me getting the call saying, can you talk to us about this PFI from a private sector point of view? Because we can get plenty of people from on one side, but no one really on the other side. And I think it's really good that Lord Hutton is, is there to be able to take that position, that there is now a body that is taking that position and providing some guidance. What's your sense on the industry reaction to this piece? Because it has got a lot of attention. It has, yes. I think... There's a certain amount of kind of sighing around. It's another piece that has some ill-informed sort of views on it. Um, But I think there's also, you know, I mean, certainly part of the industry is sort of saying, yes, this is showing up why PFI hasn't worked and why, you know, what's wrong with PFI. And to be fair to the actual, the piece itself, there is one of the head teachers who talks about his school, which has been, in his view, poorly designed, causing regular leaks, having to close bits of the school or indeed the whole school at kind of almost regular intervals from what he says. And so, you know, that's clearly a problem, but it's not, I would say, a problem of PFI. It's a problem of design and construction. And, you know, on the one hand, you can argue, well, maybe the PFI provider isn't doing all it should to rectify those mistakes. On the other hand, you can argue, well, you know, if, if there wasn't a PFI provider there, they'd be spending a huge amount of money trying to bring someone in to, to make those changes and, and to rectify the problems and potentially having to, you know, spend more money, wait more time. And I think that's the almost the crux of this piece is that there is that perception that, oh, if we didn't have a PFI, we would have more money and we'd have more control. We'd be able to do much more with what we've got. I think that's a slight misconception around, well, would you have more money? Would it be swallowed up in central government, local government funds. Would you have a better outcome in terms of your building? Probably not, because you'd probably be cutting back on your maintenance to deliver other things. And if you've got design flaws, you've still got to fix those and you sort of find ways to around those. And I think, you know, one of the other things that came up in this conversation was a head teacher sort of complaining around the fact that they were unable to work out what the value of the contract in terms of the maintenance was compared to the maintenance being provided to another uh, school down the road. When actually, when the council was asked about some of these questions, one of the things they did say was certainly, for example, energy costs, the PFIs in their area were um, insulated from rises in energy costs to a certain extent, and then it ended up being cheaper to run than the non-PFI schools. So I think sometimes there's a perception of, oh, it's PFI, I must be paying a huge amount more than anyone else. 
when the actual reality is slightly different. Listen to this whole conversation. It's all just to try and put it into a, a larger context. We're seeing a lot nowadays, the kind of reforming of the case for private finance in, in the UK, particularly around net zero. What does this kind of coverage actually, do you think, do to that argument? Do you think it's just a sign that it's more back in the frame? Or do you think it's you know, a bit of back and forth? Because over the last year, there's definitely been a lot more kind of broadsheet articles about the role of private finance and, you know, shortages in in budgets and how that will be filled and, and major infrastructure projects, you know, HS2 kind of being potentially rejigged, including some private finance seems to be back in the conversation somewhat. And an article like this comes along and definitely deals it a blow. What, what do you think the con- what do you think is going on there? Yeah, I think certainly and obviously I think lots of people have one eye in on what labor are doing and labor have been talking to the industry, talking to investors in particular around how they can get more money into infrastructure. So in the sense that kind of brings it back to the people's consciousness and makes it more likely that people will go back and say well okay what did we do before? Oh we did PFI. Oh that was really bad. But I think you know the, the reality is that lots of countries around the world have looked at the UK experience of PFI, looked at the benefits, looked at what can be achieved, looked at where it doesn't work, looked at where things may be too rigid, where contracts are perhaps too adversarial in their nature, uh, rather than being about collaboration and partnership. And they've worked on that. And I think that's probably where we have to come at this in the future. I know, again, Lord Hutton, actually, when he was talking on the Today programme, was talking about this fact that budgets are going to be constrained for capital investment in the future. He said on a couple of times, we're going to need PFI in the future. And I think that's probably slightly offered a tangent in that I don't think whatever we need in the future or whatever we deliver in the future will be PFI. I think more accurately, probably to say we need private finance in the future. We need some sort of mechanism by which we can get private finance to deliver good quality social infrastructure and you know, ways to ensure that that what is delivered and what is in the contract is actually being delivered to that standard. And I think that's where this article sort of kind of had a bit of a dichotomy in it. Because on the one hand, you had people complaining that, you know, the, the grass was being cut too short and they couldn't do anything about it. They, they couldn't just change the contract and let it go. So the complaint there was, we've got a great school, we've got a great building, but it costs us a lot because we have to comply with all these measures to make sure it remains in this state. While on the other hand, you've got people complaining that the school hasn't been built properly, it's a, a bit of a mess, and you know the, the maintenance isn't, isn't kind of providing value for money in that sense. So I think from that point of view, we can learn a lot of lessons from those two things. And actually, you can, you can create, and other countries, particularly in recent years, and I say other countries, I mean, you can look at Wales and, and potentially Scotland as well, looking at other ways of creating partnerships. And actually, you can even look in the UK at... Um, England and local authority level joint ventures where they're sharing those risks much more sensibly. They are, as a public sector organisation, part of the board. And so they're coming together regularly and they are able to say, oh, actually, we don't need X, Y and Z. Let's change that in a way that is much more fluid and much more a partnership than kind of the old rigid PFI was. So in a, in a sense, do you think that learning process and that refining process could be back on the cards? Because I was just talking to a guy in the Americas. We were chatting about the UK experience. It's never worked in the, U, in the UK as far as I know. And he was saying, 
PFI, oh, yeah, I can't believe what was going on there. But he is so for P3s in the United States because it's a reformed way and it's a very, very healthy market over there. And he was describing it as that it has to be perceived as a win-win for both sides. And at, and at the moment in the UK, that is definitely not the way that the debate is framed. It's framed that it's a win for the private sector and it's a loss for the public sector. The danger is that it very quickly translates in popular press as this is PFI, they're just bringing PFI back. I mean, that's a particular, obviously, uh, concern. If it is a Labour government, I think they'd be much more vulnerable to those kind of criticisms, given that PFI, although started under a Conservative government, as we've said many times, um, has been so associated with the, the new Labour government of Tony Blair and, and Gordon Brown. But if you look at the nuclear industry at the moment, and you're seeing the RAB model, which is obviously not a PFI, but in the larger project finance umbrella is certainly certainly in there you don't we don't have that kind of toxicity or, or aversion at the moment so clearly with the right kind of messaging and the right understanding it's it's possible to create and I mean you look at Ofto it's been it's quite widely regarded as a successful way and that is as traditional DBFOM as as you can really get so yeah I think the the difference of course is when you get into the social infrastructure realm and yeah, people are particularly sensitive to schools and hospitals in particular uh, and the way they're run and the way those buildings work. Yeah, and it would be great actually to hear from people in the industry, get their views on this. I know since posting our piece on LinkedIn, it has sparked debate already and various other people have posted about it already. But yeah, so it'd be really good to hear from people, to be honest, on their views on how, how the model can develop, how PFI is progressing and you know what the future holds. Now, we can't really let this podcast pass without touching on the Middle East, which, of course, is dominating national news bulletins around the world at the moment. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this area, as we have covered the Middle East market and particularly Saudi Arabia quite a lot in recent months, both online and in the podcast. However, with the market being so hot there uh, and the region being widely seen as the future of the global PPP market, to be honest, um, I think we have to consider how what is going on in Israel, Gaza and the Red Sea and potentially elsewhere might affect the PVP market. Somebody said to me recently, admittedly tongue-in-cheek, that you know, neon might be all that's standing between a serious escalation of the current situation into a global conflict because Saudi Arabia just obviously doesn't want to jeopardise investment into its new megacity. So it's obviously an important part of the discussion, I think, what's happening in terms of the, the geopolitics, but also what's happening in terms of the investment opportunities. Certainly. And, you know, these risks are obviously very present and materialising across the region. But just looking at the last week and the biggest news stories um, that we've seen in terms of Saudi Arabia is the approval by the cabinet of their new infra fund. It's just called Infra, which is set to be another heavyweight investor in into the sector. And importantly, there's been two major partners one blackrock is its strategic partner and also now this week macquarie has signed an, an mou to um work with them now clearly that shows that the major players are are still very interested in the region and want to be involved and want to work and particularly blackrock earlier this year we saw the really just massive acquisition of global infrastructure partners specialists in PPPs and privately financed infrastructure. So, you know, they know what they're doing. BlackRock and, and Macquarie are, are veterans. So 
I think it looks like people are are obviously aware, but are still very keen to keep them. Yeah, it's a definitely a, a strong sign, isn't it? And timely as well, given everything else that's happening. And yeah, indeed. I mean, Saudi Arabia has such a big pipeline of projects. They don't want anything to blow those off course. They're very committed to them. And I think that's a positive sign that, that they're still going to be pushing on with this and that there will be the private investors to be involved. And, you know, we've seen among the various projects that have come out in the market, we've seen plenty of internal interest in terms of the number of local players that have sort of been bidding. But we've also seen international players involved as well. So I think that does look like there's a healthy market that is going to continue. Yeah, more and more so. We see it's flagship names that that are really involved as well. And you know, we've done podcasts and and articles with those who've entered that market and also you know, listeners can look back and uh, or subscribers can look at the webinar that we did with some of the Saudi Arabian officials. And it's it's really exciting to see the nuts and bolts of of how it's being put together. And, you know, it's almost every month we see an, another UK veteran, Australian veteran go and join um, join the space because it, it is so exciting from a project perspective. The pipeline is just outrageous, basically. And it's not just a pipe dream. It is actually generating. We're seeing projects close and new sectors. So, you know, we've said this a million times about how exciting it is, but it's not just a, a dream. And it, it is does seem to actually be I think materializing. The question is whether, you know, a longer term conflagration in the region could bring about some uncertainty, some difficulties. But um certainly for the for the time being that doesn't seem to be the case. And actually on that, I mean our colleague Alicia Buller has written a number of articles, as as you say, on the website, looking at how investors are viewing the region and you know, for the moment it seems that people are holding their nerve but uh, it's definitely something that we will keep an eye on and as i say alicia certainly will be you know speaking to people on the ground there regularly to to see just what investor sentiment looks like now as well one of the other things that uh, we've been focusing on a lot over recent weeks and months is the development and creation of our new yearbooks we held a webinar looking at the 2024 market a few weeks back as well and one of the topics we discussed was some of the findings from those yearbooks and I think for me, I just want to highlight a couple of things, really. One of the big things coming out of those reports was the fact that PPP is actually growing you know, pretty much everywhere you look. The data from our projects tracker shows that there are more countries involved. Most of those countries have more projects than they did this time last year. So that suggests a really healthy market. And even when you look at something like the UK, and I kind of mentioned this a bit earlier, you look at the the way in which the local authorities in England in particular are sort of pushing ahead with more joint venture type arrangements. I think that's really encouraging in terms of how the market is developing, evolving and progressing. Totally. And just going back to BlackRock, like we said earlier, and in support of this, I remember watching an interview with the chairman, Larry Fink, and he was saying about how deficits in global governments or you know governments around the globe who are going to need to build infrastructure are going to turn to models like PPPs to help deliver it and obviously they've backed that with their acquisition but we're really seeing that and we're seeing it it's not so concentrated in the hotspots it is quite a wide variety now of um, uh, different governments, different types of governments still pursuing these kind of projects. It's less spotted. It seems a bit more even, I'd say. And that included, take it for the United States, it's loads of authorities which 
haven't done them before. They're entering into the first time. And you look at Tennessee DOT and, and their potentially huge pipeline that's coming down and North Carolina doing some really interesting projects in transportation, even though our report shows that social is actually one of the most exciting areas in the United States. So last year, there was a sense that deal flow was really quite slow, particularly in, in the United States. And it felt like there was just kind of seeds were being planted. But the report does really show quite an optimistic I think obviously picture. the reason it felt perhaps a bit slower is that Yes, there's stuff in procurement, but how much of it is getting through to financial close is the, is the big question. Um, and that's obviously still a, an issue. I think it's always going to be an issue wherever you are in the world that, with the exception of somewhere like Saudi Arabia, where things are really being pushed hard. I think, you know, places like the US, UK, other places, these things are always at the mercy to a certain extent of political changes. We saw that with the Calcasieu River Bridge in Louisiana. Yeah, it got done, but it got done much later than originally planned because because there was a change of governor yeah but it goes again it goes back to kind of the point i was making with that uh with well larry fink's point is that the fundamentals are so strong at the moment for the case and as we were talking about earlier as well with uh well likely need for some kind of private finance in in the uk's net zero there's so much infrastructure that needs to be built and a significant reduction in capacity by governments in terms of you know, the the money that they can raise themselves or, or budgetary constraints, that it pencils out that there's going to be a real rise or we're starting to see that materialise. It's not just a calculation anymore. It seems to actually be turning into real procurements and new sectors coming online. And I think that's what I enjoyed most about the report. It's actually kind of picking that apart a bit and, and kind of exposing where the hotspots are and looking at the sectors that are really growing so definitely something to catch you can find it online and now it's time to hear what resident snoop hackett p dillsworth has been working on in recent weeks hello paul so what have you got for us this week hackett well i've been looking into the plans for a privately financed northern leg of hs2 here in the uk as it goes uh yes and just to remind listeners this is the section between manchester and birmingham which was cancelled by the government just before christmas since then, the local mayors have been trying to rehabilitate some sort of link, with the idea being it will be privately financed. So how's that going? I've spoken to some transport finance experts who suggest the expense of building the new line simply won't pay for itself and fares. They reckon it's just too expensive. That's a shame. Although, as we've talked about recently on a previous episode, high-speed rail PPPs do seem to be on the cards in a number of other countries. Indeed. And when I talk to some other people in the industry, they reckon it might actually be a viable proposition. One source argues the gap between the private finance premium versus how much more efficient the private sector has to be to balance that premium out is actually not that big. So you're saying it could happen? I'd say it's a maybe at this stage. I wouldn't rule anything in or out. Mm. You're starting to sound like the government's position on HS2 for the past decade, Hackett. I think it's time to move on. Good point. I think I may have found my next holiday destination. It's going to be on an oil rig. That doesn't sound very um, relaxing, Hackett. Hear me out. It's called the rig. It's going to be a holiday destination based on an old oil rig. Picture this. Three hotels, theme park complete with roller coaster, a theatre venue plus swimming pools, high ropes course and a chance to go scuba diving. What more could you want? And the idea is that this is all on an oil rig? Well, according to the blurb announcing the planned project, it will celebrate Saudi's oil and gas heritage and is the world's first tourism destination inspired by offshore oil platforms. I can believe that. Any chance you can send me out there to uh, drill down on the details of the project? 
I think you'd unlikely hack it, not least because it would encourage your terrible puns. Fair play, Gov. Well, that's it for another show. Uh, my thanks to Jonathan and Hackett. And do remember to leave a review and we'll see you next time.